You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set up to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people, mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 356. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Annika Harrison. See ya! Hello! Oh, uh, unfortunately, Pontus is not with us today. He had other things to do. He just arrived back from uh, New Zealand yeah. a couple of days ago, I think. Probably has the jet lag of, of hell. <laughs> Plus a lot of things to sort out. I'm pretty sure of that. Mm-hmm. But hopefully next week he will be able to join us again just before Christmas. Mm-hmm. So how have you been? Are you over your jet lag? Um. We weren't that much jet lag, but we got a cold. Yeah, I can see her that. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the last, uh, I think the last of the conference, Luna was already sick. Yeah. In Canberra, that is. And then we had a few sick days in Sydney where I was like, uh, can I fly with her or not? Because she was li- like really sick with fever and, and sniffles and coughing, mm. really not feeling well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the fever broke on the day we flew out, so <laughs> finally we could fly. Did you test for COVID? We did. We tested several times, uh, several tests and everything, and she was negative. Okay. Otherwise, I, of course, also wouldn't have flown. Yeah, but we were still a bit sick or like still lingering a bit and... um. That, of course, doesn't make jet lag any easier. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah, but no, we're doing fine. It started snowing today here. So we had like the real good Christmas market experience here. It was really nice. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. I haven't seen the Christmas market here locally in my hometown <laughs> yet. <laughs> but uh, just a couple of days ago, when I got home from uh, the UK, I spent a couple of days in the, uh, in the UK. And while I was visiting my sisters, I decided to go to London from Bryson and I met up with uh, Chris French and uh, Deborah Haidt. I saw that on Instagram. Really cool. Yeah, Chris gave a, a brilliant talk as he does and then afterwards uh, we went to the pub with a lot of people ended up just the three of us and we entered a pub quiz as well <laughs> awesome it was super fun and it was so great to see them again that sounds really good <laughs> yeah especially that I couldn't meet up with uh, Deborah at QED because of my illness that, that preventing me from uh, going yeah it's, it's really special and it's really nice and like yeah you got a private audience basically <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah we had a lot of fun and I, I can't wait to wait to see the, these people again. How are we making friends all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. And this is what happened to us at uh, the Australian convention as well, and beforehand at the at the several events. I'm I'm still living off of it. I mean, I'm still finding it such an amazing experience that that it's great to remember every moment of it. Yeah, me too. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. So we'd like to to express again how grateful we are for the for the invite that we were taken such good care of and uh we could meet so many lovely people in Australia down under as we yeah, like to refer down to under. <laughs> and uh we were trying to report on a couple of things on Instagram on Twitter but oh my god what's happening to Twitter it's it's it's, it's b- b- collapsing the whole thing is really coming to an end apparently <laughs> it feels like a bit of a swiss cheese doesn't it <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> so many holes poked in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it, th- th- my problem with it is that I've actually started considering leaving myself. But the problem is that now that there are a lot of crazy things uh, being on the rise, 
on Twitter. And especially uh, just came across an article that, that was writing about a hashtag climate scam. So basically, denialists, I mean, climate science denialists, they have flooded Twitter. And as a result, the actual experts who know something about climate science, they decided to flee. And uh, I don't necessarily agree that that's the right approach. I mean, I understand that for climate scientists and for any kind of scientist, engaging with crazy people, engaging with those who are (laughs) massively misled and are angry and spread misinformation is difficult and it's very disheartening. But on the other hand, that is important. I mean, if all they hear on Twitter is their own voice and that's the only thing that spreads, for those people who are still there and are capable of understanding real science and real arguments, um, they will be left alone in the first place. And secondly, they will those people who haven't made up their minds yet, they will not be able to, to come across real stuff. I mean, only the misinformation. So even if it's tiresome, even if it's a terrible feeling to be out there and, and try to defend science... I do encourage people to stay as long as they can, because uh, we need the voice of science, the voice of common sense out there, Mm -hmm. even if uh, Donald Trump is back. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) because crazy stuff happens, right? And you know that very well, living in Germany. Yeah, tell me about it. (laughs) So what was that? Uh, Yeah, I got the news. I don't remember. I think when I was still in Australia and I just could face palm, I was just like, Okay, but really, guys? just to let our listeners know what we're talking about. So. Yeah, so there were people that tried to destabilize the government and reinstate a king. But more about that later. <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's a famous or infamous, more like Reichsbürger movement? Yeah, it's exactly that. It's, it's so ironic because I actually talked a fair bit um, about the um, Reichsbürger movement in Australia and, and saying that some see them as harmless and like dogs that barked on bite and stuff and others really see them as violent and dangerous and and then this happens you know it's a bit ironic almost as if i'm the skeptical prophet you know <laughs> was it that serious that actually the the government had to intervene not really but um well if, if you count police as government then yes but if you don't count them as government then no yeah we shouldn't i mean um for a, an eastern european like myself it's difficult to make a distinction Mm-hmm. But <laughs> but in a democracy like Germany is in a democracy they usually divide. Uh, it, yeah. it usually is a different, a completely separate entity of power for good reason. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So separation of powers is important, people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd like that message to be heard by Hungarians as well. Um, unfortunately, not many Hungarians listen to this show, but uh, mm. yeah, we're still working on it. All right, enough of this uh, because we have we have a show to produce, and we'd like to start with something that uh, also ignited a bit of a controversy. What I said about uh, Medi Thompson at our um, live recording in Canberra, and apparently I didn't do my homework properly. I mean, I tried to find out what the the actual situation is um, with regards to it being homeopathic uh, in nature. But unfortunately, I didn't quite get it right. So we 
have invited Ralf Neugebauer from uh, GWP. Did I say his name right? Um, almost, Ralf Neugebauer. Yeah, it was Na- almost. Neugebauer. Okay, mm-hmm. Ralf Neugebauer. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we invited him mm-hmm. to come and talk to us about the, the legal situation because apparently there are different levels of regulation for homeopathic products. So I know about that in Hungary as well, but I didn't know that it was the case in Germany. So to tell us more about that, here is Ralph. And here with us is Ralph Neugeboer from which part of Germany? Uh, from Cologne, uh, Germany. Okay, welcome to the show. It's your first time, isn't it? On the show, yes. <laughs> yeah, but we have we met many, many times uh, at, at different conventions because mm-hmm. you're a real conference goer. Oh, yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first contact to the skeptical movement or skeptical conferences. And I think the first international one was the European Skeptics Congress in Budapest. Oh, that okay. Was, would have been oh. 2010, I think. 2010, exactly. 2010. <laughs> and uh, but your background is not uh, science. What is it you do? Uh, I'm a judge <gasps> currently for 15 years now at the Higher Regional Court in Düsseldorf, which is a court of appeal. And before that, I was at the local court near the Dutch border, small town judge. But right now, I'm at the appeals court for Northern Westphalia, and I'm specialized uh, in uh, intellectual property and unfair competition law. Ooh. Oh, so you come across a lot of things that skeptics deal with, right? Yes, especially the part of uh, unfair competition law, because uh, the main factors uh, that are uh, contested there are either uh, labeling problems, uh, with um, advertisements, uh, with health claims, uh, that's uh, highly regulated in the EU. With the uh, there is a health claims uh, directive, mm-hmm. which actually says you may not make health claims about food, and uh, yeah. food are also supplements. And uh, of course, we all know everybody makes health claims for that. <laughs> uh, and uh, the other big part of unfair competition is misleading advertisement and uh, that can be anything uh, mm-hmm. so I, I, I come about around a lot of uh, things where I can sometimes use my skeptical uh, background amazing stuff really cool and the other way around as well that's 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 pretty good mm-hmm. but th- this is the very reason why I mean uh, we should have had you on a long time ago but this time the reason why we invited you was that you listened to the the latest episode where i talked about meditonsin mm-hmm. and uh, apparently i didn't quite get it right from a legal perspective uh, as to what the status of meditonsin is and uh, you pointed out a couple of things and we decided to to invite you to talk about it because it, it would probably be the best to hear someone who's a bit of an expert on the field so what did I get wrong and what is the situation with Meditonsin? Yeah, so uh, you reported about a court decision and uh, what you actually said is that uh, you may not advertise 
for uh, homeopathic remedies with any indication for what it's for. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is only true for registered homeopathic products. These are the classic globally... uh, What's the English word for these uh, sugar pills, these round ones? Just sugar pills. <laughs> yeah, so for that, they are always, uh, they are only registered and uh, you may not uh, say, well, uh, Annika C30 works for uh, what have you. That you may not say. However, this is not the case with Meditonsin. Although Meditonsin is a homeopathic product, it's an approved pharmaceutical And the reason for that is that, uh, at least in German law, but as this is all regulated in Europe, um, there are three special lines of therapy in the uh, pharmaceuticals. And uh, these are uh, homeopathic medicine, uh, anthroposophic medicine, and uh, natural medicine. And uh, in these uh, areas of therapy, the law says uh, you can get your uh, product approved by the body uh, that also uh, approves every other medicine in Germany. And in the decision about the approval, uh, the uh, uh, authority has to consider what the uh, practitioners of this special line of therapy say. So uh, this is a way, um, if everybody agrees, all these ingredients in Meditonsin help against the common cold, you can, without any, uh, any study, uh, you can uh, get your medicine approved as a remedy against the common cold. And this is what uh, Meditonsin did. But- And um, if you are a consumer, that's my advice, Look at the um, inlet uh, of the medicine where it says what it's approved for, because uh, usually it says, I only know the German words, um, die Indikation erfolgt aufgrund homeopathischer Arzneimittelbilder. So basically translated, uh, the indications uh, in, in this uh, are taken from homeopathic belief. <laughs> Uh, and then you know it doesn't work. <laughs> okay, but I still don't understand. What what differentiates between the homeopathic product that cannot indicate any medicinal use and this? So I still don't understand why the distinction. Legally, legally, yeah, legally uh, the difference is that they went to the German authority for uh, uh, pharmaceuticals and medical products and said, we don't want to register it, we want this medicine to be approved. And then they have to show that the medicine works. And if it's a homeopathic medicine, they show it by uh, presenting written statements by a homeopath that say, yes, uh, that may work. Oh, the provings. Yeah, provings. The homeopathic proving. Oh, my God. So that's what they will do. And then uh, the authority will say, okay, we approve it. Uh, If it's safe, that, of course, you have to show. uh, But uh, the, uh, uh, the effectiveness you show... So this way. That's ridiculous. And uh, the decided case was not about this. It was about a different uh, regulation. We have a Heilmittelwerbegesetz, uh, so we have special uh, rules for advertising uh, in any health connected way. And uh, one of the rules is you may not claim 
that your product works for sure because there is no medical product that works for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Yes. And uh, as judges, uh, we tend to interpret that pretty widely. For example, I remember of a case where we had a hypractica who advertised with a very nice story about a person who had 40 years of back problems and then he treated it with uh, snake oil. Oh, sorry, snake venom. It was. <laughs> oh, it was actual snake venom. Well, that's what he said. Um, I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, and then uh, it got better. And that okay. statement was just given. And we have said, for example, this is claiming it works every time because everybody who reads this without any disclaimer will uh, think, oh, if I have 40 years of back pain, uh, which no doctor can help me, this hypractica can. And basically, this was the this was what they said uh, Meditonsen did. Okay. But it's still outrageous that they basically have to live up to their own standards instead of the general medicinal standards. Yes. It's absolutely ridiculous. You're correct. Uh, but that's a law. That's a problem. So so basically you can say in Germany, homeopathy works by law. Okay. Well, it doesn't work any other way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so what Benetonson did wrong is that they said it will for sure guaranteed help against the common cold. And that's why they said like, no, you're not it, allowed to say yeah, that. They didn't okay. say it with these words, mm -hmm. but uh, basically this was what the court said it implied. Mm -hmm. And you may not do that for any kind of medicine. Mm. Yes. Even, yes, uh, yes. Even about medicine that works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just one more thing for, to, to clarify. When something is only registered and not approved by the medicinal authority, is that registered as medicinal product or is registered as a food supplement? No, uh, that's registered as a, uh, as a pharmaceutical. Pharmaceutical product. But uh, a homeopathic remedy, yes. But uh, if you don't want to make any claims, uh, what it does, uh, you just have to register it. And for registering, you just have to show that it really doesn't contain anything because you have to show it's safe. Yeah. yeah. Phew. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you can only buy it in the pharmacy, uh, which I think is a big problem because mm -hmm. why should you buy sugar pills in a pharmacy yeah. that gives yeah. it a legitimacy? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, it does. It doesn't need. So you could to sell it in the supermarket uh, where you buy your sugar anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. So thank you for shocking us. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we really appreciate you coming on the show and, and clearing all that up. Now it's even worse than I thought it was. <laughs> yes, uh, but we have to change the law. Yes. Uh, and uh, fortunately, uh, right now we have a, a health minister with Karl Lauterbach who is very critical mm -hmm. of homeopathy. So mm -hmm. you never give, we never give up the hope uh, that uh, the law will sometimes change and there will be the same rules applied to everyone. That would be good. Yeah. <laughs> hope, he, hope he doesn't get um, kidnapped by... Um, by a rice burger. Yeah. Yeah, rice burger. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Ralph Neugerboyer, thank you very much for coming on the show. You're welcome. And uh, ho ho hope to see you again soon at uh, one of the events. I'm pretty sure we will. <laughs> yes. I'll probably see you okay. on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Skeptics in the pub? Uh, skeptic walk. <laughs> oh, skeptic walk? Yeah, well, basically skeptics on the Christmas market. <laughs> Ooh. Sounds a little bit 
little bit off for for skeptics, but it but it but it also sounds very nice. So have fun and have a good time there. <laughs> Take you. care of. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. So yeah, it's always best to to ask someone who's an expert on a field, right? So exactly, who actually studied that and uh, work, is working with it and <laughs> knows <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. his shit about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, we are, we really appreciate Ralph coming on the show and uh, talking about it. Definitely. But now let's turn to the regular segments that we have on this show, and the first of that is always Twish, also known as. This week in skeptical history. And this time I don't want to talk about a skeptical hero, but more like um, a crank. So, well, it's not nice to call someone that uh, when the person is no longer around to defend himself. But I think uh, most people, especially in the UK and probably also in uh, Australia and uh, New Zealand, where his works have been known for many, many years, uh, they know about Jonathan Kainer. Have you heard of him, Annika? No. <laughs> okay, Jonathan Kainer was a British astrologer and he was born in 1957 on the 18th of December. So this is why we are talking about him this week because uh, it's his birthday on Sunday. And um, he was born in England. His father was a banker, I think, or worked at the bank. But his mother, Ruth, was a medical secretary and a spiritual healer. <laughs> so that kind of ran in the family, the trade. Um, but but he left the whole thing. He, he didn't didn't even think of becoming a spiritual healer himself. He worked uh, several different jobs. Also played the bass guitar. So he was a musician. But then at one concert, um, he was offered a reading by a friend of a friend. And he uh, said that it was so accurate that he decided that he wanted wanted to pursue the the same profession. He wanted to learn that. He wanted to do something about that. And mm -hmm. this is this is how he became an astrologer. But he, at first, he didn't want to do you know the columns that do the f the. The watered-down astrology, the horoscopes, the weekly horoscopes, <laughs> the, the the thing that we all we all laugh at. So he wanted to do what he considered the serious stuff. Okay, <laughs> and well, <laughs> yikes! <laughs> yeah, the serious stuff being the personal horoscopes, uh, based on the star signs, based on the dates and times that a person was born, and uh, yeah, that he considered a, a, a very serious thing. So, a full horoscope was his his main interest. But then he wrote a couple of books that were mostly about uh, helping helping people understand the language of uh, astrology and the star signs and uh, how how it was all done he even wrote an astrological computer program allegedly the first one ever but then he ended up uh, doing the columns but not only in the UK and not only in the Daily Mail and then the Daily Express but also did the Daily Mirror and a lot of other um, newspapers in 
several different countries. So Australian newspapers, the Sydney Daily Telegraph. So I don't know if our Australian listeners have heard of that and and if they know Jonathan Kainer by name. Uh, The Melbourne Herald Sun and the Perth Sunday Times were all um, running his column on uh, weekly forecasts. But also in in other countries from South Africa to um, New Zealand. But he has another connection to Uri Geller because uh, he used to work with him in some psychic uh, projects. And uh, one of my favorite places on earth is the city of York in the United Kingdom. Beautiful, beautiful historic place founded by the Vikings. And it's it's still amazing. Have you been to York, Onika? No. <laughs> I was in like Chester and Brighton and Cardiff, but I haven't been to York yet. <laughs> okay, okay, we should go there. And w- mm-hmm. we have listeners from York, so uh, guys, you could do something about that. <laughs> Just invite us. <laughs> Sketches the pub in York. <laughs> wink, wink, Rob. <laughs> so Stonegate is probably the cutest little street in York, in, in the city of York. It's in the historic centre of the town and... Uh, and it's absolutely gorgeous. It reminds me a little bit to the world of uh, Harry Potter. And uh, it's 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 gorgeous, beautiful. <laughs> and there is a bookstore that used to be a bookstore that dates back to the 17th uh, century, if I'm not mistaken. Probably even the 15th century. He, he owned that, that bookstore for a while, f- from 1999 onwards. And, uh, well sold horoscopes uh, from that shop. And uh, then he started working with Uri Geller in 2004 to to put together something that was called the Museum of Psychic Experience. But unfortunately, that didn't really become a commercial success. So unfortunately to him, that is. And um, then they they, um, transformed it into a haunted house uh, that is uh, regularly uh, mentioned in uh, ghost walks, which, uh, which are very popular in York. But then in 2014, it was closed. So that was the story of of uh, his participation in the whole thing. And in 2016, the, 20, the 2nd of May 2016, he was found dead by his wife in his home in the UK. So unfortunately, that was the end of his, uh, at the age of 58, quite young. And I'm not sure that he was aware of that, that that, that would be written in the stars for him. But even if he wasn't, it happened. So he's not with us anymore. That was Jonathan Kainer, who was born on the 18th of December, 1957. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah. Oh, by the way, now the whole venture was taken over by his uh, nephew, Oscar Kainer. So he was trained by Jonathan. So he knows everything about astrology that Jonathan did. I wonder if he knows that astrology doesn't work. Probably not. Probably not, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but from there, because Pontus is not here today, we are leaving the Pope alone, and nobody pokes him, but uh, that means that we are moving on to the news. Yes, and um, there's a new book out. Well, it's not new, but it's significantly updated, Mm -hmm. because as it earns, put 
an update out on alternative medicine, a critical assessment of 202 modalities. Wait a second, 202. Well, for the first one was... Yeah. How many? 150. <laughs> 150. Okay. Yes. Okay. So that's the second edition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He added um, 52 more. Yeah. And also added new evidence where it had emerged. So like when there were new studies, he added that to also to the other 150 and also added 52 more. Uh-huh. So it's it's definitely worth the read. And if you already have the f- uh, first one, it's still worth to get the second edition. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really awesome. And um, I'll be excited to read it. It's already out. So, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, I checked and Amazon doesn't have it yet. But uh, Edzard promises that it would come out very soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I managed to. I, I didn't for for some reason I didn't get the 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 previous version. So I decided to go for this one. Awesome. And on Apple Books it is available already. Mm-hmm. So I could I could buy it there. Mm-hmm. It's somewhat more expensive than uh, Amazon tends to be. But uh, I think this is important material. So. Sometimes we use um, Edzard Ernst's uh, books on um, complementary and alternative medicine as reference. So mm-hmm. we look up uh, what the references that he gave are, and um, that helps us um, do our homework on a couple of things. Exactly. So it's like, uh, it's like a handbook on, uh, on how mm-hmm. to deal with uh, complementary and alternative medicine. Mm-hmm. So well done. Uh, yeah. yeah, a couple of years ago, he promised that he would be publishing a book every year. And um, he seems to be living up to his promise. Yeah. Which is, is. pretty good. <laughs> really good. <laughs> um, well, there is one person who didn't really live up to his um, his promises, especially when it came to hydroxychloroquine uh, for the treatment of COVID-19. And probably uh, a lot of our listeners just shouted out the name Didier Raoul, <laughs> who's a French scientist, microbiologist, and uh, he uh, run microbiology research lab as well, the IHU Méditerranée Infection. And he is a very prolific science writer as well. I mean, now some of the articles that he he uh, worked on uh, were probably not his own work, but because he was the leader of the, the lab, um, his name was added. But now he's in a bit more of a trouble after he has been investigated by several authorities as well in France because of misconduct and because of um, spreading uh, misinformation. And um, in the scientific realm, uh, there are lots of problems with his studies as well. And one of the the, the people who pointed that out was Elisabeth Bick. Mm. whom we interviewed on episode 308 about uh, her work on uh, pointing out issues with uh, mostly duplications of figures, of pictures. And uh, she pointed out a couple of those issues about Rolf's papers as well. But she also found a couple of other uh, duplications or multiplications, uh, I should say, because... You know, when uh, there are epidemiological studies uh, and you work with a lot of people, you need to issue an um, institutional ethics approval. And every approval has a number. And Elizabeth Bick pointed out on her blog 
back in 2021 that 17 articles by the institution that was led by uh, Didier Raoul used the same institutional ethics approval number, which means that they didn't get an, an, an institutional ethics approval for all different studies. And um, so- several other ethical concerns have been flagged. And now PLOS, which is the Public Library of Science, it's a non-profit publisher of scientific material and science journals. Uh, they are usually open access journals. Uh, and uh, that is a very important thing in science, that transparency is provided by that. But now PLOS is marking 50, not 50, actually it's 49 articles uh, that he co-authored. And uh, now they are flagged as, um, they are marked for expressions of concern by the, the publisher itself. That is usually the first step towards retracting a paper. So when an expression of concern is flagged, then it means that it's under investigation for different issues with the the content of the papers. And if uh, it's uh, deemed appropriate, then the publisher usually uh, retracts a paper. But between these two steps, a lot of time can elapse usually. So this is a very much of a concern. So even after a lot of these uh, previous concerns resulted in, in him uh, even harassing people like Elizabeth Bick uh, for pointing out their errors, now it's on the international stage. He is being investigated for his scientific work and all the concerns about it. So it just shows that science is done by people as well, mm-hmm. uh, which means that uh, people and their flaws um, are all there um, when, it, when it comes to publications and uh, working with science. So this is an interesting development. And uh, obviously, the Retraction Watch article on that uh, will be available among the show notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's important to check what scientists do. And it's also important to check facts. And um, there's a new study out about fact checkers. Oh, because we have to check fact checkers as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this study um, analyzes how fact checkers from four different countries assess climate change claims. Mm-hmm. The study itself is from the University of Kansas, but um, it is European relevant because they also look at um, European countries. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's actually really interesting because they found that there are different methods, there are different things that people check. All of these fact checks or checked are facts in regards to climate change. And of course, fact checking is really important. We all know that um, because of how things are with our information situation. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, um, Around the world with different approaches to to um, check, but they um, analyzed nearly 500 examples and compared that between the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany and Australia. Mm-hmm. And they conducted these examples between 2015 and 2019. So there's not even COVID misinformation in there, of course, but that's... Because it was about climate change, of course, there's all, there should be no COVID information in there anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah. always, if I see 2019, I'm always like, oh, that's pre-COVID. <laughs> yes, but they found 
that they uh, the fact checks mostly were focused on four aspects of climate change and then this does it exist mm -hmm. what are the causes what are the impacts and are there solutions or what are the solutions and of course what i found interesting is that in the united states most people assess claims about um, whether climate change actually existed um, australians researched claims about solutions mm -hmm. in the uk people checked the impact so um it's really interesting to see that that was very different and the interesting thing is that in germany um people mostly checked claims that were done on social media whereas like in the overall study the claims that were most fact-checked were made by politicians so about 81 percent of the claims were from politicians so i found that interesting because There mean, seems to be more distrust in social media in Germany, but more distrust of politicians outside of Germany. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think I think it just, we have to keep in mind that it is important to fact check, but that there will also be differences in fact checking depending on where you're from. But of course, this is what the study also was for. Um, it is to help fact checkers, like for example, like Snopes, to mm -hmm. um, understand the best way to conduct their services and how to debunk falsehoods and misinformation. And um, what they found was really good was um, if it also had visuals to support that. So um, diagrams or, um, or other images, for example. Yeah. Fact checkers are in a difficult position because mm -hmm. when they find that the facts don't align with what has been said, then uh, obviously those who don't like that outcome, who want to believe the claims that have been under investigation, um, they will dismiss it. And that will result in the dismissal of basically every single fact check that that same fact checker conducts. So that fact checker will not be acceptable for that particular person anymore. And that is a difficult situation. Because obviously, if I don't like uh, what the fact checkers say about something that Donald Trump said, and I'm a Donald Trump supporter, then obviously I will accuse the fact checkers of partisanship. And this is why I keep hitting the drum about that, that um, we need to engage even if everything is over-politicized by now. And speaking of misinformation, one of the areas where misinformation has a very uh, strong effect is uh, vaccinations, because we see a drop in vaccine confidence all over the world. And uh, that is largely because of uh, the movement that was started by Andrew Wakefield, who is a quack and who's uh, basically responsible for the spreading of the misinformation that the MMR vaccine causes autism, which is not true. Uh, so lots of fake claims. But because of that, vaccine confidence has dropped significantly. And uh, now the, the latest uh, report of the European Union came out on um, you know, public confidence in vaccines that was conducted in 27 countries uh, through 25,000 interviews. And the main focus was um, to what extent do people agree that vaccines are important, how effective they see the vaccines and how safe they perceive vaccines and it looks like the 2020 results were the highest since this has been measured so from 2018 to 2020 
there was a little bit of increase. And then after 2020, with all the misinformation spreading uh, during the COVID pandemic, uh, obviously it dropped significantly. And now vaccine confidence seems to be somewhat restored, but it's still lower than in 2020 when the pandemic was not full blown yet. And it looks like it dropped back to similar levels than in 2018. Now, First of all, we need to know whom we are talking to as well. So healthcare professionals, fortunately, in most of the 27 countries, they believe that vaccines are safe. But overall, uh, all the data shows that 81.5% um, of respondents agreed that vaccines are important. About 85.6% agree that they are effective and 82.3% agrees that they are safe. So um, it's not terrible. It's a significant drop, but it's still workable, uh, so to speak. And this is why EU health ministers aim to, to target that and to try to administer as many vaccines as possible, especially when it comes to uh, measles and especially with children. And when it comes to other illnesses uh, like uh, polio and um, even chickenpox, but a lot of uh, the flu vaccines have not been taken up either. So um, people don't necessarily take the flu vaccines here in here in uh, uh, Europe and um, in in many of the European Union countries. And with, this is very important because the World Health Organization, as Pontus reported on the next, last episode, has declared in November measles as an imminent global threat because 40 million children had missed at least one of their doses of uh, measles vaccine in 2021 and that is terrible 40 million children yeah. that is is terrible mm -hmm. we're talking about a disease that has about 9 million cases every year and about 128,000 deaths uh, as a result. So it's serious. We have to take it seriously. And misinformation doesn't help. Definitely not. I read a study. Good for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and reading through that, as Scotty would say, my skeptical senses were tingling. <laughs> okay. Because it was a study that was part of the... OPERA project, which stands for Osteopathic Practitioners Estimates and Rates, which is developed as a Europe-based survey. And in this study, they updated or like translated it into German and then adapted it for the Austrian circumstances. Okay. So the focus was on Osteopath. Austrian osteopaths, but Austrian, mm -hmm. Austrian osteopaths. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They did that in between April and August 2020. Mm -hmm. And it was voluntary, online-based and closed-ended by 338 individuals. 71% of that were female, <laughs> so mm -hmm. majority. And the median age was 40 to 49 years. So far, so good. They, they said like what they're doing, how often they use which techniques and, and so on, and how long the sessions are on, on average. Uh, what techniques you mean? How far-fetched <laughs> their, uh, their claims are as to what they can cure with uh, osteopathy? Pretty much. <laughs> and then I read okay. funding for the survey was provided by the Österreichische Gesellschaft für Osteopathie. Okay. Okay, that, that's already a bit like... But at least they revealed it. Yeah, that's that's right. That's exactly. Important. Like Didier Raoul didn't necessarily do it in every paper that he wrote. <laughs> exactly. So. But then I found in a blog post by our aforementioned Edzard Ernst, mm -hmm. who also picked out a few things that 
he thought noteworthy and I have to agree with him because the findings that he got was that visceral osteopathy was used by 84% of the osteopath. Okay, so far so good. Muscle energy techniques were used by 53. Okay, then, and then that's where it gets dodgy. And um, I'm, I hope you appreciate the Australian term here. <laughs> um, <laughs> techniques applied to the breasts were used by 59%. Vaginal techniques were used by 39%. Wow. And rectal techniques were used by 39%. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so that is osteopathy. And the word osteo means that it refers to the bones. Yeah, not that many bones in the vagina. Um, I mean, it shouldn't be about boning. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not the bone we're talking about, you know. And he said what, what he found really worrying was this sentence, and I quote, informed consent for oral techniques was requested only by 10.4% of respondents and for genital and rectal techniques by 21% and 18.3% respectively. So they're using vaginal techniques for something that doesn't really have evidence and not even giving informed consent. Ooh. So and, and if you keep in mind who funded that study and what this study was for, then you can think that could be even like more harmful and ethical, illegal and horrible. <laughs> so yeah, there you go. Brought the mood on um, successfully. I hope you've got a cheerful news item now for us, Andras. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. I am definitely looking forward to this um, in real life. But it's a big thing that now they, a couple of days ago, they announced that the European Commission granted market authorization to the latest dengue vaccine. It's the dengue tetravalent vaccine and uh, in the European Union. So it means that vaccination against this terrible disease, which is hemorrhagic fever and has a devastating effect and uh, is very prevalent, especially in Southeast Asia. But because of a lot of people travel across the world and to tropical places where it's present and it's spreading like crazy, there have been cases of local transmissions even in European countries. So it's becoming a thing. And with the uh, global climate changing and the Aedes aegypti, uh, which is the um, um, mosquito species that is responsible for spreading the viruses, the vaccine is made up of a serotype that has the genetic make makeup that is closest to all the three others. So it should, in theory, work for all four serotypes. But it's not only a theory because phase one, two and three trials have been conducted with more than 28,000 children and adults. So with with a long term follow up uh, from from global data as well. So we can actually say that it prevents symptomatic dengue cases 12 months after vaccination at 80% of the cases. So it's very high up there and uh, it will be very important, especially with some countries having seen a twofold or even fourfold increase in the number of dengue cases in the last couple of years. So uh, in Southeast Asia, where a lot of people go and especially after uh, people think that uh, COVID is over, now they travel like crazy. So they, they, they go everywhere. Mm hmm. 
So, <laughs> very good. I'm very impressed. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been a bit of a, a challenge because uh, the problem was that um, dengue can have a disease enhancement. And this is why a secondary infection could be deadly, even to those who don't have a very, very serious illness on the first exposure. But uh, there is no evidence that that would be happening. So this is looking very good. So, because I'm going to travel to Southeast Asia again very, very soon, sometime around February, I'm looking forward to getting it. I'm really up for it. <laughs> the vaccine, not dengue fever himself. Oh, no, not that. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Important distinction. You don't have a death wish, no. No, I actually fear coming down with a dengue case. Yeah. I wouldn't want that. No, please don't. All right. But that has been all the news that we wanted to share with our listeners this week, which means that we are moving on to finding out who's been really wrong lately. Yes, and I, of course, couldn't take anything else. I already um, spoiled in the beginning what what I will take, (laughs) but, of course, I want to give you a bit of background first. So, on December 7th, um, there were raids conducted around Germany and police have arrested 25 people um, who together plan to overthrow the German government and to instate Heinrich VIII who is um, a distant descendant of German royalty. So he is, he is nobility. And among those who were arrested, there were um, Reichsbürger people. As most listeners already know, this translates to like citizens of the Reich, citizens of the empire. And mostly they are um, disorganized individuals. Some have extreme right views, others just want, don't want democracy, basically. And the thing is with this group... They also had, for example, a former member of German parliament who was also a judge in that group, and that is Birgit Masak-Winkemann. She um, yeah, was a parliamentary deputy for Alternative für Deutschland, AFD, mm-hmm. left the party in 2021, though. And which was also very concerning. There were former soldiers in, in that coup plot. Oy, oy, oy. And that's something, yeah, exactly, where you're like, Okay, so this immediately gives the, this group access to weapons and also to individuals who have been trained. So that's, of course, is very concerning. Yeah, so like the Reichsbürger people, they are, as, as I said, pretty disorganized, but the estimations are that they have about 21,000 supporters, which is, they're not small, it's not a small group. They believe different things, um, most believe that Germany is not a democratic republic. They believe in different territories, um, but some of them believe in like the empire, um, the Prussian Empire before the First World War. Some believe in the empire after thirty-eight when Austria was part of it. Some of it believe in the uh, Weimar Empire um, border. So, like you can you can see that it's like um, it's not completely clear. Mm-hmm. But what they do is that they um, are very often anti-Semitic, um, ignoring all the whole the holocaust the genocide of on the um, herero and nama in in namibia in 1904 and and the holocaust so they are they are concerning and of course it is definitely concerning that there was this coup to overthrow the german government yeah I mean, that wasn't the only example. For example, in 2016, a police officer was killed during a raid 
And in August 2020, um, members of the Reichsbürger tried to enter German parliament um, as a protest against COVID-19 restrictions, but that their former military people in that group and a former parliamentarian is of course concerning because it also shows that they have, they, they seem to gain influence. But to put that all in a nutshell, because they hatched a plot to overthrow the German government and to instate a king as German leader, Reichsbürger people of Germany receive this week's prize for being really, really wrong. Yes, they are. <laughs> you know, they've been brought up in a democracy, probably most of them. So in a democracy, you know, the way to get rid of a government if you're not happy with them is voting yep <laughs> and not just overthrowing so what is the current level of support that they have um not big luckily <laughs> okay so yeah, so so they're marginal enough to yeah yeah most people think they're not cases yeah yeah which they probably are some people think that they're not wrong with like a few things mm -hmm. so for example some people think like they're not wrong in regards of i don't know wanting to be more proud of germany or or stuff like that yeah, yeah. but mm -hmm. yeah, yeah but yeah most people don't um support them <laughs> yeah okay well thank you very much Annika. Thank you. And speaking of support, <laughs> I'd like to draw uh, the attention of our listeners to the fact that they can support us. Yes. <laughs> Firstly, you can find uh, more information. You can find the show notes on our website at theesb.eu. And you can find us on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> we are still there. And on Instagram as well. Mm -hmm. And on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. But we have a Patreon page as well, where if you feel like you would like to chip in and uh, support the show, in the last couple of months, uh, we've been traveling a lot. We occasionally when it was not provided to us uh, we could afford to actually book hotel rooms to actually buy equipment that we can do the work uh, for the podcast with so that is very important it's a great support that we don't have to spend our own money on the equipment and on the services that we use like web hosting and stuff so thank you to everyone who has provided us with financial support and uh, we ask you to do that if you haven't yet and you feel like it's worth something that we do here thank you so much <laughs> yes uh, let's finish the show and as we always do we do it with a quote so Annika please yes this week's quote is by Gregor Mendel he was an Austrian friar and biologist and discovered hereditary traits in peace, um, which are now referred to as laws of Mendelian inheritance. Mm -hmm. So everyone who did high school biology probably knows him, uh, at least um, distantly. Yes. Because he did this whole like parental generation and um, filial generation one and how they're all mixed. And then and then um, the piece, so the flowers that come on in the second generation are like differently colored, but that and that way. And so that actually, like I found that really interesting as, as a high school student. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the most important thing about his work is that uh, he applied mathematics. Yeah. 
exactly. He counted everything and he tried to assess um, what the numbers tell you about the hereditary, hereditary traits. And he was very lucky that he managed to find characteristics that actually are not inherited on the same chromosome, mm-hmm. uh, which he had no idea about. He was just lucky with that. Yes. <laughs> but uh, he drew the right conclusions as to the rules, the general rules of inheritance. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is amazing. And it's still part of the high school curriculum, mm-hmm. as you said. Yeah, exactly. All right. So what did he say? <laughs> uh, I just also wanted to add that he um, was um, born in, in um, Austria in, in a, a German-speaking mm-hmm. part of the Austrian Empire. But um, it's today that's uh, Czech Republic. Yeah, Bruno. So, but what he said is, the value and utility of any experiment are determined by the fitness of the material to the purpose for which it is used, and thus, in the case before us, it cannot be a material what plants are subjected to experiment and in what manner such experiment is conducted. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, of course, is a bit abstract, but what we can take out of that is that any experiment is only worth as much as the material is fit for it. For the purpose. <laughs> yeah. When you want to do science, you have to know what you're doing. Exactly. <laughs> you have to so you have to, have to know what you're investigating and you have to know what the right tool to investigate that thing is. Exactly. Exactly. So part of doing good science is that. Yeah. For example, <laughs> that there are like studies, if you do an open survey with voluntary people, um, it's good to do that and there are other studies it's not good to do that <laughs> yeah it's exactly so exactly that was Gregor Mendel and okay that was the quote <laughs> great thank you very much Annika and Inin thank you very much for joining me today thank you also <laughs> many thanks to our listeners for tuning in please keep doing so and until next week goodbye tschüss bis lat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe.